I just want to thank all of you for coming out tonight. We're going to be hearing lesson number two in building God's kingdom, one relationship at a time, number two. And also, we want to welcome all you online people. We're glad you joined us, and we you as part of this congregation tonight. So hopefully, you will receive and be blessed as well. So I'm going to look at, at Matthew 22 as we start uh, tonight, and uh, we will be reading uh, the 37th, starting in the 37th verse, going through verse 40. But I just want to remind you that um, the purpose and the vision for Victory Center is to build God's kingdom. That's our vision. And uh, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is within you. So it starts within you. So this series on relationships really has to do with, with putting the spirit of getting God's will working in our lives at every level so that we can become the witness that Jesus said we're supposed to be, a witness to go into Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So that would be Gaiman and Liberal and uh, Kenya and wherever. We want to be witnesses, but... If we're broken inside and we're not a whole person, then we are not going to be the witness that God wants us to be. So we're going to build the first of all, the kingdom of God on the inside of us, where we allow the will of God to begin to work on the inside of us and make us what he has actually created us to be. Because we all have a part. We all have a part. And it's important that we get our relationships right. So Sunday we ta started talking about relationships and uh, we will use our, our base scripture from Galatians 5.14 in just a moment. But I wanted to start with uh, Matthew 22 where Jesus uh, was uh, a lawyer came to him and asked him a question and said, what kind of commandment is great and important, the principal kind in the law? Some are light and which are heavy. And so this is Jesus' reply. And he replied to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and intellect. This is the great, most important principle in First Commandment. So we talked about that on Sunday uh, a little bit. And then it goes on to say, uh, verse 39, The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as you do yourself. These two commandments sum up and upon them depends all the law and the prophets. So Jesus is saying the second commandment is that you shall love your neighbor. And we talked about that on Sunday. We talked about love. We talked about what it is and what it isn't. And how important it is in a relationship. Uh, put up Galatians 5.14. So this, was, this is our foundation scripture. For the whole law concerning human relationships is complied with in one precept. You shall love your neighbor as you do yourself. So both of these scriptures talk about the most important thing that we can do in our lives. Is first of all, we love God with all of our heart. 
then we love our neighbors. But sometimes we overlook the last part of that. It says you shall love your neighbor as you do yourself. So that gives us a clue about what we need to do in order to love our neighbor effectively. The truth is, loving others depends on your ability to love yourself. And to the degree that you love yourself, it's going to be the degree that you're going to love other people. And so we're going to talk tonight about loving yourself. Now, some, uh, I think probably this is a big problem in a lot of Christians' lives. They don't even like themselves, let alone love themselves. So part of their problem is that they don't feel very worthy. They feel a little bit worthless. And so they, the truth is they don't know how God whether God values them or not. And uh, several years ago, probably, oh goodness, I don't know, it might have been almost 10 years ago, I went to a woman's retreat. I spoke at a woman's retreat down by Katy, Texas. And we had, uh, we had a night service and we had a morning service. And then that afternoon, we had... Uh, free afternoon so we all went into town it was kind of a, a resort area so there was a lot of gift shops in town so we went into town and I was just I was shopping at this gift store and I run across uh, actually my eyes caught these shoes that were very embellished I mean they were my kind of shoes they were you know I had sparklies on them and everything and a and that always draws me. And so I, I looked, I went over, looked at the shoes, and, and yeah, they looked really nice. But then I looked at the price. And the price was like $79, which back then was a lot more than I wanted to pay. So I, I determined in my calculations that the shoes were not worth the price that I was going to have to pay to get them. I was not willing to pay that price to get those shoes. So believe it or not, I passed it up. But there was another lady from the same conference. Just as I was walking out the door, I looked, and she had picked up those shoes. She was at the checkout counter, and she was buying those shoes. In her estimation, those shoes were worth $79. She was willing to pay $79 plus tax probably to get those shoes. So I realized that, you know, the worth of something is determined by the buyer. If you don't think it's worth that much, you're not going to buy it. So now let's look at uh, you and I. How much did Jesus, how much did God pay to redeem us and get us back from the hand of the enemy? Well, John 3.16 says, For God so greatly loved, 
and dearly prize the world. Now, that's all of us. It's not talking about the earth or the atmosphere. He's talking about you and I. He so greatly loved and dearly prized the world that he even gave up his only begotten unique son so that whoever believes in him, trusts in, clings to, relies on him, shall not perish, come to destruction, be lost, but have eternal life. Let's do it in the King James. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the question that I would have to ask you is this. What is Jesus worth to God? What is his worth? What would you think uh, Jesus' worth would be? A million dollars to God? I don't think there would be a price that we could ever set that would determine how much Jesus valued, I mean, how much God valued Jesus. So this is a huge, huge thing that God did. He saw you and he thought you were worth enough to pay his most valuable asset, his son. That's what he paid for you. So that's how valuable you are to God. Can you comprehend that? Just look what Jesus went through for you. Were you worth something for him to do that? I believe you are worth it in God's eyes. The problem is we cannot see ourselves sometimes like God sees us. We see us so devalued. And that causes big problems in our life. And we're going to look at why we feel that way. The truth is the me I see is the me I'm going to be. So it's very, very important that we see ourselves accurately. Because out of how we see ourselves is the way that we're going to act. If we see ourselves as defeated, we're going to go around with our head down and we are going to be defeated. If we see ourselves victorious, we're going to have a smile on our face. A spring in our steps. It's going to change things for us. How we see ourselves changes things. So in the very beginning, and we'll look at Genesis 1:26, starting in 26. This is how our self-image is made in the very beginning. Because when we're talking about the me I see is the me I'm going to be, we're talking about our self-image. How we see the image of me that I see. All of us have a self-image down on the inside of us. It's not necessarily the image we see in the mirror. It's that underlying image that we have of ourselves. And so God said, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make mankind in our image after our likeness and let them have complete authority over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the tame beasts, and over all the earth and over everything that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image and likeness of God, he created him. Male and female. No gender dysfunction there. He created them. So when God created man, he took his image and impregnated it down on the inside of the man and the woman that he created. And his intention was that because there, that image was so much like him, just like him, that they could fulfill what God instructed them to do. He said, just, I want you to take dominion over the earth. I want you to replenish it. I want you to subdue it. I want you to multiply all over the earth. So as I said not too long ago when I was ministering, God had in mind to create heaven on earth, to franchise heaven, begin to build a heaven on earth. And so he put the image on the inside of man to be able to do that. But we know that chapter 3 came along. And we know that Adam and Eve sinned. Now in uh, Genesis 3 verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was... Make a note of this. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So what, he, what we get from this is that when sin entered into the human race, it created something that was contrary to the image that God had put on the inside. It shattered that image. And now they're afraid they're afraid of the very creator that created them. And for the first time, they recognize that they're naked. And uh, the next verse, uh, in verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Who told them that they were naked? For the first time, they were covered with the glory of God. They really weren't naked because they were covered with God's glory until sin entered. And then when sin entered, the glory departed and they were naked, they were vulnerable, and they were afraid, and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord and from uh, the very uh, scrutiny of God. They didn't want God to see them naked like he didn't know anything about that. <laughs> so, uh, so the very thing that happened to Adam and Eve happens to every single one of us at some time. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of what? The glory of God. 
Now, I didn't look this scripture up. There is a scripture that said that Christ in us is the hope of glory. I believe that since we're talking about glory, I believe that when the glory departed from Adam and Eve, God had a plan that he could bring that glory back into his creation once again through Jesus Christ. And so uh, this is what happened in the beginning and this is what happens in our lives that begins to destroy our sense of worth. The image, the self-image that God has given to us, that image is important. And sin has destroyed it. And, <clears throat> you know, I'm not real excited about talking about sin, but uh, the truth is we, we've got to talk about it in this day. You know, Debbie was just telling me about a prophecy that she heard. I haven't heard this prophecy yet. But uh, in this prophecy, because we are in a place where the glory of God is beginning to be manifested on this earth, and the devil is doing such horrible things, that the prophecy, this is what she told me. I will be listening to it. But it's kind of like we're in an Ananias and Sapphira moment. You know, when they lied to the Holy Spirit, they dropped dead. You think that was kind of uh, exaggerated judgment? That's what happens when God starts to move. We need to clean ourselves up. So sin in a person's life that has not been dealt with, that sin will cause us to be less than uh, confident. Adam and Eve lost their confidence and they become self-conscious. That's why they knew they were naked. They become self-conscious. Their eyes were on themselves. And uh, a little illustration that I like to use to, to illustrate this is like if, if you had on this beautiful white blouse, women, or you guys had on a nice, nice shirt that, you know, kind of like Doug's back there, that's one color, and, and uh, you started to walk in the church, and you looked down, and there was a big blob of ketchup on your shirt. Well, church was getting ready to start, and uh, you were the song leader. <laughs> I just want to ask you, would you be self-conscious? You would be conscious of that stain on your shirt. You might even try to hide it. You might run to the kitchen and try to wipe it off, but ketchup doesn't come off that easy. So you feel flawed and you feel tainted. That's the way sin makes us feel. We become more conscious of our flaws than we do other people. It's kind of like a person that's sick. You know, when you're sick, uh, you're not out trying to help other people. What are you thinking of? Yourself. Because you need help. And so when, when sin comes into a person's life and it's not dealt with, there is a sense of something's wrong with me. I'm just, you know, I, and so because of that, then we look to other people 
to try to tell us we're okay. And that produces a problem. A big problem. So, um, I, I just jotted down a, um, a definition of what some symptoms of guilt and shame are. Guilt and shame aren't exactly the same, but um, they work together. Guilt is a feeling of heaviness that is an unbearable burden causing the spirit of a person to experience depression, making everything seem dark and oppressive. Uh, so when you feel guilty, it strips away your, shield, your uh, breastplate of righteousness. The Bible talks about the breastplate of righteousness in Ephesians the sixth chapter. And what is that breastplate supposed to do? Quince all the fiery darts of the wicked. If you don't feel righteous, and let me tell you, even though Jesus has made us righteous when we were born again, when sin comes into a person's life, it steals your sense of righteousness every time. It steals it until it's dealt with. So uh, this guilt is, it, it is something that will separate you from feeling God's presence. And a lot of times, people don't like to be in the presence of God's people when they feel guilty. I've seen this happen over and over in the years that we've been in the ministry. When somebody begins to let sin into their lives, they um, quit coming to church. Have you noticed that? I don't know if you have, but I've noticed it many times. Because they... It's like Adam and Eve. They felt like they had to hide themselves from God. Because guilt, guilt is heavy. Guilt is something that um, can destroy relationships. Uh, an experience I've had, and I've shared this before, uh, but I want to share it again because it's really good. Because uh, it really, it really uh, shows what happens when you feel guilty. And this took place several years ago, but uh, Charlie and I had gone to uh, Enid. And uh, he I said, would you just let me go into the mall for just a minute? And he said, just a little bit, but don't spend any money. And don't write any checks. And so I, uh, sure, you know, I heard him, but I don't know if I really heard him because when I got in there, I found this blouse that was really, really cute. I mean, it was perfect, so perfect. And so I reasoned this way. Well, I know he said, don't write any checks, don't spend any money, but he hasn't paid me my allowance this week. And so I deserve that money. So it's not really his money, it's my money. And so I'm going to get this blouse. So I bought the blouse, I got in the car, and he said, did you write any checks? And I said, no. I just, I don't know where it came from. I just said no, because I did write a check, but it was my money. So I just let it go, but I mean, torment set in. 
for me. Terrible torment set in for me. And all the way home, I was hearing, liar, liar, you say that you're a pastor's wife, but you're a liar. And so <laughs> that went on for a week. And we had gone to Youth America at the end of that week. Uh, it was pastor's night at Youth America, so we had gone. And, and all the time I was there, it was just like, you talk about not being able to feel God. No, I, I was thinking about the blouse. I was thinking about the check. I was thinking about the lie. And I just, uh, it was tormenting me so bad. Finally, during the service, I said to probably God who was dealing with me, okay, I'm going to tell Charlie about it on my way home. And I thought, if I tell Charlie about it, he probably will divorce me. I mean, I, he won't ever trust me again. And I mean, all of the reasons why I shouldn't tell him came up. But I, I couldn't bear the sense of guilt anymore. And see, that's what, that is what sin is supposed to do for a Christian. It's supposed to cause you grief. So long story short, halfway before we got to Enid, we were going back through Enid, I told him, I said, Charlie, I've got something to confess. And I told him the whole horrible story. And he said, oh, okay, I forgive you. No divorce. Um, that's it. I've suffered for a week. And... Uh, he did say, I will give you your allowance from now on. <laughs> you don't take it. Oh, okay. But according to the Bible, uh, the way we get rid of sin is simply this. Admit it and quit it. You could put that on your refrigerator if you like. Admit it. And quit it. Don't blame somebody else. Don't make allowances for yourself when it comes to sin. Admit it and quit it. In other words, repent. Now Mark 6, 6, 12 talks about what repentance is. It says, so that, this is amplified because it's a good definition of repentance. So they went out and preached that men should repent that they should change their minds for the better, better and heartily amend their ways with abhorrence for their past sins. So, to truly repent, there has to be a change of mind, a changing, amending the ways, not just, not just say, confessing your sin or be sorry that you got caught but heartily amend your ways. And this is the important part, abhorrence for your past sins. Hating the sin. Now, in 2 Corinthians 7.10, let's look there. It talks about what I went through. For godly grief 
and the pain God is permitted to direct produces a repentance that leads and contributes to salvation and deliverance from evil. There is a, a godly grief and a pain that will lead you to true repentance and contributes to salvation. And it's a good thing. Repentance produces a good thing. And it never brings regret. But worldly grief, the hopeless sorrow that is characteristic of the pagan world, is deadly, breeding and ending in death. Now, the two examples that we could use, these two kinds of grief that have to do with sin, is Peter. You remember? Peter, uh, he denied Jesus. Jesus had told him ahead of time, you're going to deny me. And he should have known better. But three times he denied Jesus and then the cock crew. So what did he do when he recognized that he had he had sinned terribly against Jesus. What did he do? Well, it tells us in Luke 22, verse 62, it says, He went out and wept bitterly, that is, with painfully moving grief. He was so sorry that what he had done. He was abhorring that sin. He despised that sin that he had committed. That is true repentance. And we know that before it was all said and done, that he became a mighty evangelist. And Jesus forgave him. And he went on with his life and became a world changer. But then there was Judas. He did basically the same thing. He betrayed Jesus. And when he saw what he had done and he was convicted of that sin, this is what he did in uh, Matthew 27, starting in verse 3. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, Judas was afflicted in mind and troubled for his former folly and with remorse, with a little more than a selfish dread of the consequences. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. They replied, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And we know the outcome of that. He hung himself. He repented, but he went to the wrong person to repent. He went to the people that actually helped him betray Jesus. And they said, we couldn't care less. We don't care how you're feeling. It wasn't true repentance because repentance must, forgiveness must come from God. And it destroyed, it destroyed his life. But let me tell you this. When you repent before God, at that moment, God doesn't decide, um... I don't know if she's worth it or not. This is the 10th time that she's done that. I don't know if I'm going to forgive her. Maybe I'll make her suffer a little longer. That's not the way God does it. The truth is, you were already forgiven 2,000 years ago. 
Jesus already forgave every sin, past, present, and future. Every sin, it all in your bank account. You have forgiveness for every sin that you would ever commit. You already have forgiveness in your bank account from God. All you have to do is withdraw it through confessing your sin. Accepting accountability for your sin. Repent. Abhor the sin. Turn from it. And you are instantly forgiven. Put up Psalms 32, uh, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, continually unfolding the past till all is told. Then you instantly forgave me the guilt and the iniquity of my sin. Acknowledging your sin is the way you receive forgiveness from your sin. Now, um, I'm just going to throw this in real quick. I just have five minutes. But uh, the, the worst sin that you can do that creates the bi biggest amount of shame is sexual sins. Now God made sex for a very special reason. That makes us as close to God as we can be. Because we can create life through sex. And so as a result of this such important thing. That he put uh, sex in the earth. He put sex under a very protected sheltered uh, institution called marriage. When it is in the institution of marriage, it is protected by God, and it is something that He is going to use to replenish the earth. It's a good thing. But we find out in Leviticus, Leviticus 18 and all through the Bible, there's some, such a thing as fornication, adultery. Sex outside of marriage in any perversion, sex, any of these things, they are sin. Capital S I N. In Levit Leviticus 18, we won't take time to look there, but God lays down some laws. And I know this isn't a book, Le uh, Leviticus, that you study a lot. I read it through every year, but I'm always glad when I get through with it. But I read this in, in Leviticus 18 every year. that there are he, God begins to say, do not have sex with your father's, your father's wife. Don't have sex with your sister. Don't have sex with this person. Don't have sex with... And he always says this, because you are uncovering their nakedness. Now, this is not something you probably would think we would talk about in church, but it's a big deal. I don't believe it's just talking about the physical thing. I think it is talking about you become vulnerable to the devil whenever you step outside the bounds that God has placed it in. And demonic forces will come through the door. You know, we don't open the door to flies in the, in the summer. We don't open the door and say, I wonder how many flies I can let in today. 
But when you open the door, many times flies take advantage and fly right on in. And that's what the devil does. He noses around our lives until we open a door. And then he tries to come in. He comes in. And what he does in the sexual area is that he will create shame in your life. And many people get a shame-based nature. They don't know really what's wrong with them, but they just feel ashamed of themselves. And I I had some... uh, I don't have time to give you all the symptoms of what it looks like to uh, have that shame-based nature, but it, it messes with a lot of things in your life. I'll just say that. You can read my book. They're all in there. And so when God invented sex, this is what he had in mind. Two individuals coming together and becoming one. So when a person has sex... When a man and woman has sex, they become one flesh, whether it's outside marriage or inside marriage. And I like to look at it this way, that it's like a a piece of pink construction paper and a piece of blue construction paper that is glued together. And when you try to, to separate it, it becomes ripped And part of the pink is on the blue, and some of the blue is on the pink, and we call that soul ties. The emotions begin to be tied to that person. And I had, uh, I will will probably run this off, and uh, you can pick it up on Sunday. But the hormones that are released during the act of sex causes uh, bonding, chemical bonding, Uh, I really don't have time to read this, but I will have this passed out or available on Sunday if you'd like to read about the hormones that are released. This is some of the problems that causes people to uh, feel bad about themselves, where they can't love themselves. But when I was studying this, and and God began to give this to me, he gave me a prayer that a person can pray to cleanse themselves of all of the soul ties, all of the demonic spirits, everything that's associated with those sexual acts that maybe uh, uh, anybody has been involved in. And I'm just going to go through these real quick. And I will have that Sunday as well. You can pick that up. But uh, it's a seven-point prayer. Ask God to forgive you for your part in the incident. Tell God that you forgive the other person for what they did to you. Ask God to forgive the other. Ask, tell God that you forgive the other person for what they did to you. And then ask God to forgive the other person who was involved in the sin. Take authority over any demonic spirits that took advantage of you at the time of the sexual encounter and command them to leave. Break every soul tie that was formed during that incident. Then praise and thank God that you are forgiven and cleansed from the pollution of that sin. Declare you are free and never let Satan harass you with shame, guilt, or condemnation about it ever again. You can do that. If you do it, do it 
specifically. I had one lady come in, and I, uh, I was going to lead her in the prayer, and she said, I've just, I've just had so many sexual encounters, I couldn't tell you all of them. So I said, all right, well, let's just go by a year. I said, in the year so-and-so, every sexual encounter I had in that, and I, we prayed that. We went down through all the years and prayed that cleansing prayer. And I have to say that the next day I saw her, she was skipping into the church, and she said, I have to tell you, I am free. And she was so excited. It did something on the inside of her. It changed her whole way that she saw herself. And so these little, you know, we think, well, it's insignificant. It's not insignificant to God. And so 1 John 1, 9. Well, let's look at 1 John 1, 9. We're going to uh, wind this up. If we freely admit that we have sinned and confess our sins, he is faithful and just, true to his own nature and promises, and will forgive our sins. Dismiss our lawlessness and continuously cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Everything not in conformity to his will and purpose, thought, and action. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in my life, Lord. And in uh, John 8, 36, it says, Whom the Son... Sets free is free indeed. The Amplified says, so if the Son liberates you and makes you free men, then you are really and unquestionably free. So the devil tries to tarnish God's reputation to us to keep us from loving him. And then he tries to tarnish our reputation to us so that we can't love ourselves Therefore, we can't love others properly. So God's made a way. What a glorious way. He's made us a sanctuary. Pure and holy unto him. Let me tell you. When you have a sense of the righteousness of God. And the true holiness of God on the inside of you. The righteous are as bold as a lion. And we then can go out any place that the devil's trying to take dominion and we can run him off because he has nothing in us. And that's what Jesus said. He said that the devil's coming, Satan's coming, but hey, he has nothing in me. No doors are open, every door is shut. And in this day and hour, we need to have the greatest amount of God's power working in our lives. And we need to be a pure vessel so it can flow through us unhindered in Jesus' name. It has been our honor to offer this message today. If you would like to partner with us as we continue to bring the Word of God, we would ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Victory Center with a financial donation. You may do so today via the online giving portal at victorycenter.org. Thank you.